0: I hope you'll turn with me in a Bible to 2 Samuel, chapter 20. 2 Samuel, chapter 20. Our focus today will be on verses 3 to 13. I don't know about you, but I have yet to come across anyone who takes a verse out of 2 Samuel 20 and frames it to hang on their wall in their house. I have yet to meet anyone who quotes 2 Samuel 20, or who's committed any of it to memory. I have yet to meet anyone who takes a verse out of 2 Samuel 20 and posts it on social media. I doubt whether you've ever even heard a sermon on 2 Samuel 20. Why is that? It's because... It's graphic. It's grisly. It's uncomfortable. But I'll tell you one thing, it's not. And that is unclear. The theme of 2 Samuel 20 is clear. And that theme is sin. The enormity of it, the ugliness of it, the pervasiveness of it. We don't want to talk about this. Just skip over. And... The reason that we want to skip over it is the very reason why we need to talk about it. Why we need to look at it in depth. Because our general tendency is to only talk about sin in the abstract. Well, we're all sinners. Nobody's perfect. Just We, we got that. Just move on. But we need to look at it and to examine it with specificity. No matter how uncomfortable it might make us. Because this is how God deals with our sinfulness. What you'll find is that generally when preachers talk about how God erases our sins, expunges our sins, erases the debt of sinfulness that we've committed against him, people like that. That's attractive. That gives us a warm and fuzzy feeling. But when you talk about how God exposes our sinfulness. You well, know, the crowds tend to thin out a little bit. We're less comfortable with that. But what you'll find in Scripture is that before God expunges our sins, He exposes our sins for our good and for His glory. So we need to face this head on, no matter how uncomfortable it might make us, because It's God's word, first of all, it's inspired, it's truthful, we need to read it, but also because our tendency, your tendency and my tendency, is always to skip over our sinfulness, to try to cover it up, to try to make it seem like it doesn't exist, or if it does exist, only the most general, vague way. And what you need to know is that you can't cover up your sinfulness Your sinfulness and my sinfulness cannot be covered up, so don't try. Instead, openly and earnestly confess your sins to the only one whose precious blood can cover over and cleanse the vilest offender. We don't need to try to cover up our sins. We can't. We need our sins to be covered over. But oh, how we try. And so we need to look at what is it about the nature of sin that makes it impossible to cover up? What is it? No matter how hard we try, no matter how much we want to, we can't cover this up. Let's start by reading just verse 3 verse 3. When David returned to his palace in Jerusalem, he took the ten concubines he had left to take care of the palace and put them in a house under guard. He provided for them, but had no sexual relations with them. They were kept in confinement till the day of their death, living as widows. Pausing there. Here's the context. David is returning to Jerusalem as the king, but as he's on his way, there's a disagreement, a division among the tribes of Israel. The majority, the northern tribes, choose to follow a troublemaker named Sheba. So there's yet another civil war in Israel. But as David comes back to Jerusalem, before dealing with that rebellion, that civil war, he first has to take care of some old business. And what you see in this one verse that seems so obscure, that seems so unquotable, that seems so irrelevant to your life and to my life, we have layer upon layer upon layer of sin. And we need to disentangle it in order to see this the enormity of sin, the enormity of sin. Sin grows too quickly to be covered up. That's one of the reasons we can't cover up. It grows too quickly. It grows like compound interest. It grows exponentially. It multiplies beyond our control. So how did this start? Well, let's go back in time To 2 Samuel 5. And in 2 Samuel 5, we're told about how David accumulates one wife after another. And if you look at 2 Samuel 5 verse 13, we read, after he left Hebron, David took more concubines and wives in Jerusalem, and more sons and daughters were born to him. Now on the surface, there's nothing odd about this in the context of an ancient Near Eastern king. For us, oh, this is horrible. This is horrible. But in this time and place, if you said, that king has a harem, he has multiple wives, he has concubines, you say, so what? He's king. He does whatever he wants. So in David's context, this doesn't seem weird. But David was not called to be any other kind of king. He was called and anointed to be God's king. And what does God have to say about this subject? Well, as a matter of fact, God gives explicit instructions about what the king is to do and what the king is not to do in Deuteronomy chapter 17. And if you look at verse 17, we read this. He, that is the king, must not take many wives, and notice the reason, or his heart will be led astray. What we typically think of when we think of David's sinfulness is Bathsheba, right? One day he goes out on the rooftop and he looks down and he sees a woman bathing and he lusts after her and they commit adultery. That doesn't come until several chapters later. What we see here in 2 Samuel 5 is that the ingredients for that adultery were already brewing here. They're, They're about to boil over. They're already present. It didn't just happen one day that David walked out and lusted and committed adultery. Oh no. His heart was in a very dangerous place long before that event. And you see it when we're told, the narrator's forecasting, he's accumulating more wives and concubines. And the the is letting us know this is not going to end well. He is disobeying God. And so at the most basic fundamental level, We need to know what sin is. Can you define sin? What is it? Well, it's doing something wrong, right? I mean, is there any more to it? Let me give you this definition. Sin is a lack of conformity to or a transgression of God's law. God's moral commands, a lack of conformity to, a lack of obedience to, or a transgression, a deliberate breaking of God's commands. You could put this verse in your notes or in your margin. In First John three verse 4, 1 John three verse four, we read, "Everyone who sins breaks the law. In fact, Sin is lawlessness. Sin is lawlessness. This is the definition of sin. And so in David's case, he's not conforming to what God has said, namely that he's to have one wife for life. And he's transgressing God's law because he's accumulating for himself multiple wives and concubines. The enormity of sin. Well, it doesn't stop there, of course. Well, because his heart is far from God, then he commits adultery with Bathsheba. Surely that would end it, right? Once he knows, you know, he did that wrong. No. Because then he has to try to cover it up. So what does he do? Well, he has her husband murdered. That should end it, right? No. He... Pretends like that never even happened. And God has to send his prophet, the prophet Nathan, to confront David and to rebuke David and to tell him to expose what he's done. Remember, this is God's way of dealing with your sinfulness and my sinfulness. Before he erases it, before he makes it go away, before he expunges it, it must be exposed. It must be brought into the light And this is what God tells David through Nathan in 2 Samuel 12 to show just how far David had fallen. This is what the Lord, the God of Israel says. I anointed you king over Israel and I delivered you from the hand of Saul. I gave your master's house to you and your master's wives into your arms. I gave you all Israel and Judah. And if all this had been too little, I would have given you even more Why did you despise the word of the Lord by doing what is evil in his eyes? You struck down Uriah the Hittite with the sword and took his wife to be your own. You killed him with the sword of the Ammonites. Now, therefore, the sword will never depart from your house because you despised me and took the wife of Uriah the Hittite to be your own. And notice the punishment. This is what the Lord says. Out of your own household, I am going to bring calamity on you. Before your very eyes, I will take your wives and give them to one who is close to you. And he will sleep with your wives in broad daylight. You did it in secret, but I will do this thing in broad daylight before all Israel. And so, as events progress, this one who's close to David turns out to be his son Absalom. Absalom usurps the throne, manages to persuade the majority of the people in Israel to follow him, to persuade them that he would be a better king than his father. And they follow him, and he forces David out. And while David is out, what does he do? He commits acts of sexual violence against these ten concubines that David had left to take care of the house. And so when David returns, this old business that he must attend to pertains to these concubines, and what does he do? Well, it may seem harsh to us. He's not actually imprisoning them. He's protecting them. Because in this day and time, They're subject to shame, they're subject to ridicule, and so he provides for them in a safe place. And while, yes, it's painful, they have to live as widows, yes, there are tears, no, this is not ideal. This shows the enormity of sin. Even when we try to fix our sins, we still can't wipe away all the tears. We still reap what we sow. Even when our sins are completely covered and we're forgiven, there are still consequences in this life for our transgressions against God's law. And so do you see how in this one verse, one solitary verse, so obscure, seemingly so irrelevant, layer upon layer of sin is bound together in an intricate and ugly web of deceit and lawlessness. David's doing the best he can given the circumstances. And you may say, well, these poor concubines, I mean, aren't they just seem like pawns, they're handed from this man to that man? How is that right? Where's God in that? And if it hits you the wrong way, it should. But this is a direct consequence of the fact that we are living in a fallen world. And your sin is never just isolated to you, your sin will have consequences. other people. Just think of a divorce when there are children involved. Just think of the consequences for those children. They're affected. And this is the nature of sin. As much as we want to put Humpty Dumpty back together, as much as we want to contain it and say, oh, don't don't look at that. There's nothing to see here. Oh, no, we, we filed it. The paperwork's done. It's over. It's never that simple when it comes to our sinfulness. It's too big. It's too enormous. It can't be covered up, no matter how hard we try. And so what's the lesson here? The lesson is this. Remember, what you feed will grow, and what you starve will die. For too long, David fed his flesh, for too long. He didn't care whether he stood out as a holy king governing over God's holy nation. He just fit in with everybody else. And he reaped the deadly consequences of that. So when you know you're harboring a resentment against someone that's distracting you from your relationship with God, when you know you have anger in your heart when you know you have lust in your heart, when you know there is something in your heart that's driving a wedge between you and God, nip it in the bud. Nip it in the bud. If you feed it, it's going to grow. Starve it. Kill it. Crucify it. That's the only way it can be dealt with. And yes, it may hurt, but nip it in the bud before it multiplies and grows out of control. Well, David's not alone in this sinfulness. Let's continue reading in verse 4. Then the king said to Amasa, Summon the men of Judah to come to me within three days and be here yourself. But when Amasa went to summon Judah, he took longer than the time the king had set for him. David said to Abishai, Now, Sheba, son of Bichri, will do us more harm than Absalom did. Take your master's men and pursue him, or he will find fortified cities and escape from us. So Joab's men and the Carathites and Pelathites and all the mighty warriors went out under the command of Abishai. They marched out from Jerusalem to pursue Sheba, son of Bichri. When they were at the great rock of Gibeon, Amasa came to meet them. Joab was wearing his military tunic, and strapped over it at his waist was a belt with a dagger in its sheath. As he stepped forward, it dropped out of its sheath. Joab said to Amasa, How are you, my brother? Then Joab took Amasa by the beard with his right hand to kiss him. Amasa was not on his guard against the dagger in Joab's hand, and Joab plunged it into his belly, and his intestines spilled out on the ground. Without being stabbed again, Amasa died. Then Joab and his brother Abishai pursued Sheba, son of Vichri. One of Joab's men stood beside Amasa and said, Whoever favors Joab, and whoever is for David, let him follow Joab. See here the ugliness of sin. The ugliness of sin. It cannot be covered up because it perverts and distorts and twists too many good things. Too many good things. Here's what's going on. Amasa was the general of Absalom. He was fighting against David. But David, when he wins as an act of generosity and mercy to his former enemies, makes Amasa his own king in place of Joab. Because Joab, as we've seen multiple times, is ruthless and even assassinated David's own son Absalom. And so Amasa is placed in charge. Well, the king turns to Amasa to put down this rebellion, but the the general, Amasa, takes too long. He's late. So David says, well, if this is going to get out of hand, so he turns to another one of his nephews. These are all David's nephews, by the way, and so they're all cousins with one another. He turns to Abishai and says, go, take Joab's men, put down this rebellion. And as they're on their way, of course, they encounter Amasa. And Joab, as we've seen him time and time again, will not tolerate a rival. He will eliminate his rival in a ruthless fashion, in a grisly fashion. He walks up to his cousin, Amasa. He, he leans over, catches a dagger in his left hand, normally. His defensive hand. You don't fight with your left hand generally. He walks up to his cousin. Puts his fighting hand out. How are you, my brother? And then drives the dagger home. In brutal, brutal, heartless fashion. So that Amasa dies. The ugliness of sin. Notice how many things sin is twisting here and perverting here and distorting here. The first is that Joab is perverting what David had commanded. David made Amasa his general. This is by the order of the king. No matter what you think about it, Joab. But Joab doesn't care about that. He doesn't care about what the king has said. He looks out for himself. He's he's clearly focused on how can I get my job back? And I don't care who's in my way. I don't care what I have to do to get my job back. I'm going to get my job back. And so he distorts and twists this whole mission, this whole mission that is aimed at defending God's people, leading God's people against a rebel and an enemy, and he turns it into personal vendetta. He perverts and distorts his family relationships. his, his own cousin. While, while pretending to be kind, while, while pretending to care. How are you, my brother, cousin? And this is exactly what we need to be aware of. This is what sin does. You may think that here in this place you're safe from sin. No, you're not. I might think that as I stand in a pulpit I'm safe from sin. Oh, no, I'm not. Do not underestimate the reach of of sin. It is ugly and it will and it can corrupt even the best things. That's what it does. It's the nature of sin to distort a marriage, to pervert a relationship, to take something that is good and holy that is ordained by God and to pervert it, to turn it into something ugly to use that thing to drive a wedge between you and your heavenly father now, i could get specific but i don't really think i need to i think you can look inside your own hearts right now and know what are those things that are lurking inside of your heart you know they're wrong your conscience tells you they're wrong And you think nobody knows. You think nobody will see. You think you can cover it up. No, you can't. God sees and God knows. And Jesus tells us there is nothing hidden that will not be brought to light. In God's own time and in God's own way. But notice the perversion in verse 11. An anonymous soldier, one of Joab's men, stood beside Amasa and said, Whoever favors Joab and whoever is for David, let him follow Joab. Look at what he's doing. He stands up he says, who's with us? If you're with David, if you're with God's king, follow Joab. (laughs) Really? If you're with God's king, follow in the wake of this bloody murder? And they do. Because that's what sin does. Even on this holy mission to restore God's kingdom, sin breaks in. Now look at what this individual does next, verses 12 to 13. Amasa lay wallowing in his blood in the middle of the road. And the man saw that all the troops came to a halt there. When he realized that everyone who came up to Amasa stopped, He dragged him from the road into a field and threw a garment over him. After Masa had been removed from the road, everyone went on with Joab to pursue Sheba, son of Bechri. Notice the visibility of sin. We see the enormity of it. We see the ugliness of it. See here the visibility of sin. It stands out too clearly to be covered up. It stands out too clearly. But this anonymous soldier thinks he can cover it up. He notices that as he's summoned the men to battle, as they're going down the road, they are stopping to look at this dead body on the road. And they can't move on. And so what does he do? He's, oh, nothing to see here, folks. Nothing to see here. Keep it moving, keep it moving. But he knows that tactic won't work, so what does he do? He has to move the body. He covers it with a garment. It's all better. It's all gone. Nothing happened. It's covered up. That history's deleted. It's over. Not so fast. There's a power. A power working right now from this pulpit through the word of God. God. To expose all that, Hebrews 4.12. For the word of God is alive and active, sharper than any two-edged sword. It penetrates even to dividing soul and spirit, joints and marrow. It judges the thoughts and attitudes of the heart. Nothing, nothing in all creation is hidden from God's sight. Everything is uncovered and laid bare before the eyes of him, to whom we must give an account Everything is laid bare. Everything is exposed. No matter how much we've tried to cover this up, and look at how ridiculous this is. He thinks that if he just moves his dead body off the road, if he just puts a garment over it, a cloth over it, it's all better. And yet, Amas' blood is crying out for a better word. It's crying out for justice. For righteousness. For something to be done about this. It's ridiculous, it's foolish, and yet it's what we do. It's what you do, it's what I do. We are all tempted to try to cover this up to make it seem like nothing happened. But God knows. And there's a reason that we want to cover it up. It's because sin always leads to misery. And who wants to be miserable, right? So let's just overlook it. Let's let's look on the sunny side Let's focus on what's right. Let's move on from this. Stop talking about sin so much. The reality of God's Word is that there is no remedy. There is no salvation. There is no forgiveness apart from an honest, heartfelt, open, earnest confession of sin. This is what David tells us. When I kept silent, my bones wasted away. I was miserable. For day and night, your hand, that is the hand of God, is weighing him down. My strength was sapped as in the heat of summer. Then he acknowledged his sin. He did not cover it up. He took refuge in the one who can forgive transgressions, who can cover over even the vilest offender. So if it seems like this leaves you and leaves me in an impossible situation, praise be to God you get it. Because it is impossible. There is nothing that you can do. There is nothing that I can do to fix what our hands have wrought. We can't put the world back together. We can't save ourselves. This is impossible. We're dead in our sins and transgressions. But there is a God for whom the impossible is no barrier. There is a God who has done for us what we can never do for ourselves. He sent His one and only Son. His Son who both was in perfect conformity to God's law and who never transgressed God's law. And He dealt with your sins and my sins publicly on the cross as we read in Colossians chapter 2, verse 13. When you were dead in your sins and in the uncircumcision of your flesh, God made you alive with Christ. He forgave us all our sins, having canceled the debt of our legal indebtedness, which stood against us and condemned us. He has taken it away, nailing it to the cross, and having disarmed the powers and authorities, he made a public spectacle of them, triumphing over them by the cross. You want to know forgiveness? You want to know peace? You want to know redemption? Look to the cross. Don't bypass the cross. Look at the cross. Look at Jesus' bleeding side. His innocent, righteous life poured out publicly in public humiliation and shame, not for good people, but for sinners like you and like me. And if that doesn't humble you, then nothing else will. Nothing. And if you don't see your sins nailed to the cross in Jesus, then you don't know the first thing about your sinfulness. But if you do, if you see in the cross of Jesus your only hope of redemption, if you know the cost, of forgiveness. Forgiveness is not easy. It is hard. It cost Jesus his life. If you see in the cross that reality, then you can sing wholeheartedly, Jesus paid it all. All to him I owe. But in order to sing that, you have to know your debt. You have to know you have something to pay that you can never pay back. You have to know what you have done in transgressing against a holy and righteous God. But be encouraged. He stands ready to forgive you. But until you turn to Him, until you repent of your sins, until you look to Christ for salvation, I need to tell you, friend, today you are in grave danger. You are in peril. Because a judgment awaits every single one of us. And on that judgment day, your heart will be exposed and you can't say, oh, I tried to fix that. Oh, I didn't really mean that. Oh, that wasn't really that big of a deal. Oh, no. Your only hope on that day and my only hope that day is that the shed blood of Jesus, the sovereign grace of God, can cover over anything. Has it covered over your life and your heart today? receive it turn to christ repent of your sins before it's too late as we go to the lord in prayer lord help thank you for helping us see what we want to overlook what we want to neglect what we would prefer to say doesn't exist Lord, help us to see that we are so prone to see sin out there in him, in her, in this, all the while failing to look within our own hearts. Lord, convict us today, every single one of us. And for those who have yet to be converted, for those who have yet to give their heart and their life to Jesus, to be found in him, to be brought to new life, To be born again, Lord, may this be the day. Work in their hearts. And for all of us where our spiritual life has become superficial and hollow and prideful, Lord, humble us under the weight of your mighty hand and lift us us up to be your people, to show forth your grace and your love, and your power in our lives. For we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.